Uh, if you don't know me, I am Josh Miller, and I'm the pastor for children and youth here. Uh, pastor Stephen is, is away this weekend, and so it's my privilege to bring God's word to you today. We're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. So John 2, 12 to 22. And if you want to use the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 887. So in the Pew Bible, we'll be spending our time on page 887, and that's John 2, 12 to 22. And as you're turning there, I just want to to begin, uh, help us think about this, because last time I preached, I told you we're going to look at the seven signs in John. And each of these signs uh, is meant, according to John, the end of this gospel is meant to point us to teach us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through by believing in him, we may have eternal life. And so these signs that we see are extremely important. And even just to help us define a sign, and and I didn't use this last time because turning water into wine is is a very, uh, if you want to say miraculous thing, something uh, that we don't normally do. Um, unless it's over a period of time and, and you ferment grapes, grape juice and that sort of thing. But today's sign is not uh, this miraculous deed in that it's not a miracle or what we would normally term a miracle. And so to help us understand rightly, uh, I, I just want to say that a sign is three things. It's a public work. Okay, so it's, it's uh, not merely words, but works are included but it's works that are done in front of the disciples and the unbelieving world. So last week we saw, right, Jesus at this wedding and he turns water into wine in front of his family and the disciples and those around. Uh, And today we're going to see Jesus in the temple. So it's a a sign is a public work, but a sign is is also, it's explicitly identified as a sign, which we'll see today. And these these signs, these works, they point to God's glory. And so there's this, what we're going to see in, in all of these signs is that they reveal something more than just this act that Jesus does. It reveals that Jesus is God's authoritative representative here on earth. And so with that in mind, let us now go to our Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we can know you, that we can uh, see you in it, and even see ourselves and, and see our need for Jesus Christ. So we ask today that as we look at this second sign in John, that you would use it to help us marvel again at Jesus Christ. If there are some that perhaps don't know you, that you would use even your word today to bring about life you bring about repentance and faith. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So anger. When you hear the word anger, lots of things may come to mind. It could be uh, a parent who is prone to anger. It could be a friend who is prone to anger. It could be this significant moment in your life where somebody got angry at you. Anger can stick in our minds if... If it's from an event that happened even 20 years ago, you can recall that event even today, perhaps. And so it may catch us by surprise when 
those who aren't typically angry show anger. This sticks out in my mind in my own life from when I was a kid. I would go to my grandmother's house at least once a summer, and often I would spend a week there. My parents would go home, and, and so there was also some neighbors that I liked to hang out with from my grandparents' house, and I went over there and was playing too long. She had told me to be home at a certain time, and she, I just lost track of time. I was having so much fun, and she came over an hour after I was supposed to be back at her house, and she was fuming. And my grandma loved me, okay? I was her only grandson. So her getting angry and mad at me didn't happen very often. And in fact, this is really the only time I remember her being angry at me. And so it sticks out in my mind. And sometimes this happens with Jesus, where sometimes we think of him only as meek and mild, and we forget that Jesus, too, gets angry. He displays a a righteous, a holy anger. So let's read now, beginning in verse 12 in John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So we see in this passage, right in verse 12, it says, after this. So we see Jesus, after turning water into wine, and he leaves this wedding and goes from Cana to Capernaum, and then we find him in verse 13, he's now in Jerusalem. He's there for this Passover, which is required for any Jew, especially every male Jew, to to, no matter where they were, they were expected to go back to Jerusalem. They were expected to go there and make sacrifices and offerings. And the Jews, they would go to the temple to worship the Lord. And we see here Jesus, he's angry. Almost, I, the, the picture I get was kind of like Indiana Jones just coming through with his whip, clearing house, right? But there's a difference. As Jesus is driving out these oxen and sheep and money changers, he's, he's got a righteous anger. He's not coming through a whip, with a whip just to, to, to clear house and, and he, it's with selfish, selfishness and pride. He's got 
an appropriate anger. Because he's concerned about protecting the right and proper worship of God. He wants the people to have unhindered worship of God. And if we think about worship rightly, and, and, and it's this idea, I think of there's, there's a relationship in view, right? There's, there's the people of God who, who come to his place. They came to, to worship and praise him, to make much of him. And by the people coming to him, the intent was that they too were drawing near and being blessed by his presence. But that's not what's happening here. They're being hindered by what's going on. And so Jesus is concerned that their worship is being stifled and and hindered. And as they drew near, this is where God dwelt. This is where they came in closest to God's presence. And so as these Jews are drawing near to Jerusalem for the Passover... They're doing so with the the expectation of we're coming to remember what God has done for us when our ancestors were taken out of Egypt and delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. We're coming to remember that event. We're coming to to worship him because he's delivered us and, and, and brought us out. And so it's meant to, as they come to worship, produce this love and this devotion to God. But that's not what's happening. Right? In verse 14, what do we see? It says, in the temple there's people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers are there. Right? And so instead of hearing the prayers and and worship of the people, as they come, all these people here are animals. In the words of Kent Hughes, he, he imagines what Jesus may have seen, and he says, as his eyes scanned the great court of the Gentiles, he saw sheep, oxen, fowl, and everything that goes with them. There was huckstering, bartering, and haggling over the weight of a coin. And the one thing that the temple is created for and, and built for is not happening. What is it? What is it made for? What was the temple there for? It was built that God's people might come into his presence and and worship him with a great, reverent, and true worship. And that's not happening. And we see Jesus, as he observes what's taking place, he is passionate. And I think we we even can learn from this. That God's people ought to be passionate about the things of God. That we ought to be passionate about the worship of our great King. And so that anything that hinders our worship, we ought to be on attack mode against it. That just like Jesus is is clearing temple and getting rid of these people buying and selling and, and getting rid of these oxen and sheep. He's clearing house, not because it was wrong to, be having, to, to have oxen and sheep for sacrifice, but what was wrong is that these, these sellers are bringing things into God's house. Because people, Jews would have been coming from afar. They would have been coming from, from hundreds of miles away, perhaps. 
And so bringing an oxen or sheep with them would have been very difficult. And so Jesus' beef is not with the oxen. His trouble is with, with what's taking place in the courts. Worship is being hindered. And even it's the place. Because worship is, is being hindered for, for the Gentiles. That's where this buying and selling was going on, is in the, in the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were supposed to be coming and worshiping. And so as Jews came from afar and Gentiles came from afar to worship God, their worship was being hindered. And especially the Gentiles. These Jewish leaders weren't concerned with the worship of these Gentiles. And even from the very, very beginning of the temple, all peoples were welcomed. Listen to the words of 1 Kings 8, beginning in verse 1. This is also another account of, of Solomon and his dedication of the temple, similar to what Butch read earlier. 1 Kings 8, 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as your people do. So even from the very beginning, when Solomon dedicates this temple, it's obvious that Israel is supposed to come, the Jews are supposed to come and worship God, but even the Gentiles, wherever they may be from, right, even from a far country, are to come to God's house and worship Him. The nations are to worship God. And the buying and selling of these oxen and sheep, pigeons, the money changers, they're all hindering the worship of God because it's especially taking place in this court of Gentiles where the Gentiles will be coming. And so it's almost, it's almost impossible for the nations, for the Gentiles to worship. And we even hear, I think, a, 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 it's getting very personal for Jesus, right? In verse 16, what does he say? He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so what was supposed to be a, a place of prayer and worship and reading of scripture has now been turned into a house of business, a house of trade. And Jesus is angered. He's he is so angry that these people, instead of glorifying God, glorifying the Father, they're, they're making much of self and turning worship into a business that lines their pockets. And I also wonder if Jesus is thinking from Psalm 84.10. Listen to the sweetness of what it's like to be in the presence of God. Perhaps he's even thinking when he comes into the temple, I want this for my people. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my father than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
And so I wonder, even as Jesus comes into the temple and he sees worship being hindered for his people and worship being hindered for the nations who are coming to God, if he's thinking they are missing out. These leaders are are turning God's house into a house of business and trade instead of it being a place of sweet worship to our Father, a place of intimate fellowship with God. And so I wonder, even though the temple is not the same as this church building, I do wonder sometimes, do we make it difficult for others to come and worship God? Maybe even unknowingly, do we make it difficult? Do we, if we're at work or in the neighborhood, are we inviting people saying, we would love for you, I would love for you to come to church with me next week? Or even, even easier, right? If somebody, a visitor shows up even today, perhaps, have you welcomed them, encouraged them, letting them know, I'm so thankful that you're here today? Because this church is, is yes, it is for us, but we want people, I think, to, to feel welcome, to know that they are welcome to worship our God, and even people that aren't like us people that are different. Because Hamilton Baptist Church should not be just a church for middle-class white people. It should be a church that looks like our community. And yes, that may be the majority of our community, but it's not all of our community. And so when we see people different than us, do we welcome them? Do we, instead of instead of holding, holding high the banner of look like us, do we fly high the banner of Christ and the cross that people, even if they look different than us, even if they feel different than us when they come in here, do they see we are a people that love Jesus? I hope they do. My prayer even in, in getting ready to preach this is that, that Christ would even work in us today that he would help us to be a joyful people, welcoming others to worship God with us. So we see here Jesus is clearing this temple with great force, and, and, and he wants these people to have unhindered worship of God, his Father. But he's also zealous for worship of God. He's angered, right? He's, he's angered that these Jewish leaders are turning the worship of God, the house of God, into a place of business. Look at verse 17 with me. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we see, right, Jesus is angry and he's zealous for God's house to be used for God's purposes. And, and, and I think we all can identify with being zealous for something, eager for something, wanting something so bad that we give our lives to it, right? Youth. We even talked this morning that sometimes we're eager, maybe even zealous to fit in. And perhaps we do things and we give our lives to things that we wouldn't normally do or wouldn't, wouldn't want to do because we're zealous, we're eager to fit in. Or young adults may be zealous and, and eager to prove themselves. Maybe you get the new job and you might be willing to do underhanded things because you 
are so zealous to prove yourself worthy in that position. Or men. I think perhaps middle-aged men maybe struggle and are zealous for work. And then midlife crisis may even hit because we had in our minds when we were younger that at whatever age, 40 or 45, that we were going to be someone and be something better or greater than we currently are. Because we're zealous to make much of self at times. Or moms, maybe you're zealous for your family and your kids and perhaps that even overrules your desire and your affection for the Lord at times. Or maybe if you are growing older and you're getting near retirement and you're zealous for retirement, you're eager and you look forward to it, right? And then the closer you get, perhaps maybe the more stingy you get and keep more because you're looking forward to that retirement. We're all zealous for something. We see Jesus here as zealous for true worship of God and his his anger here is not because he's, he's selfish and outraged, but he's hungry. It's not a selfish outrage, but he's hungry for God to be glorified. And I think this, the, this phrase here, right, or this sentence, zeal for your house has consumed me, I think it's a play on words, right? We see Jesus, he's extremely zealous for the worship of the Lord, but it's also Fire can be considered consuming, right? Zeal consumes him because he is eager for worship of God. He is every, his whole life is about people turning to the Lord, turning to himself. And so it's this very fact that he is so zealous to make much of the Heavenly Father that he goes to Calvary. His zeal for the Lord turns the heart's of the wicked against him, and he's crucified. And so we see that Jesus is eager. He's zealous for the worship of God. I want to ask you, are you zealous? Are you eager to worship God? Are you looking forward each Sunday, Saturday night even, to come to gather with God's people to worship him? Just earlier this week, Stephen was talking to the staff, and he was telling the story that shortly after Easter, I'm pretty sure of this year, he's having breakfast, and he meets a local pastor. None of you would know him, so don't think what church around here. He is a local pastor, but it's a, a, a church probably 45 minutes away. And this pa- they're, they're talking, and this pastor, he, he seems caught off guard as he's talking with Stephen, like, I actually worshipped this past Easter. This was just a few weeks after Easter. And he said, I can't even tell you the last time I worshipped the Lord on a Sunday. And then this pastor's telling Stephen, I've even talked to other pastors, and, and they're telling me the same thing. Like, I, I go to church, and it, it's not worship to me. I go and sing, and nothing's taking place in my heart. And I wonder if, if maybe that happens to us at times, where we just wake up and we go because it's, it's almost a ritual to us. Kind of like you go to work on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning. 
has just coming to church just become a ritual? It's on the calendar. Jesus is zealous for true worship of God. Are you eager, right? Do we even gather, do we sing with joy? Do we delight in the word being read? And do we pray alongside those who pray that, that God's kingdom would come here on earth and even in our hearts? Do we receive with open arms the word as it's preached? How do we define our success when we worship on a Sunday morning? It's not about the amount of money we take in and success and worship is not about the number of people that we attract. Did we grow this week over last week or year after year? That's not how we define worship. Worship or success, true worship, is in the purity and in the truth by which we come to worship our God. So are you, are you eager? Are you, in fact, zealous? Could people say about you, man, dad is zealous. He's so ready to be at church tomorrow. I pray my kids could say that about me. And not because I'm a pastor. Could your kids say the same of you? Could your grandkids say the same thing? Grandpa, granny loves Jesus, and they are so zealous that they're going to clear out their schedule on a Saturday night and make sure they get a good night's sleep so that they can be here wide awake, eager to worship our Lord. So we, we see that Jesus wants unhindered worship. We see that Jesus is zealous for true worship. But notice, right, you would, you would, you would think of all people, Jesus' motives are good, are right, You would think of all people that these Jewish leaders would be all on board. Look at verse 18 with me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Right, so they, Jesus clears the temple. He gets everything out, clears it out so that actual worship can take place. And what's their response? Their response isn't, hey, thank you. You've helped us out here. Their response is, on what authority? Give us a sign that you have the authority to come and clear out the temple. Because most likely, it was these Jewish leaders and maybe even the high priest at this time that's allowed these things to happen, that has even started these buying and selling of oxen and sheep in the temple. And so they question Jesus' authority. And let's look at his response in verses 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Right? So they say, on what authority do you, Jesus, come in here clearing the temple? And at first glance, it seems a little odd. They, in fact, don't get it, right? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. So you can even imagine Jesus standing there as he says this. 
And they think he's talking about the temple that they're standing in, right? Because they ask him, well, it took us 46 years, and you think you're going to be able to, 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 to build this back up in three days? To which I think Jesus could actually say, well, well yeah, actually, um, if we were talking about this temple, perhaps I could. You know, I've created all things in six days. I think speaking something into existence wouldn't take three, not even three minutes, maybe even three seconds. But he's not talking about the temple that's built with human hands here. And we even see in verse 22 that the disciples don't even understand at this time, right? Look at verse 22 with me. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So this is, this temple cleansing, clearing is, is most likely the first. Um, a number of scholars think there were two times Jesus cleared the temple. Because if you read the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the temple clearing is at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before his crucifixion. John places this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And many scholars think that there's probably two temple clearings that, is, that are taking place. And perhaps that's even why when Jesus is questioned before his crucifixion uh, and, and people slander him by saying he said he would destroy the temple. When in fact he doesn't here say I will destroy the temple. He says destroy this temple. Meaning you destroy this temple as he talks to the Jewish leaders. Which I think just highlights. It highlights John 14, 26, when Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Right, so if this in fact truly is the first, uh, uh, the first of two temple clearings that Jesus does, more than three years later, the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind the things that Christ has taught these disciples. And then they realize this is what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about his own body, which in fact John tells us, right? In verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And it's also confirmed in Revelation 21, 22, where John, seeing a vision, he says, and I saw the temple, or I, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So Jesus is telling, telling everyone there, he says, my authority to clear this temple is because I am the temple. I'm the one who's made I'm the one who's made all things. And so if I am Lord, then I'm also Lord of this temple. And in fact, this temple, it's, it was meant to symbolize and picture Jesus, right? What we know of the temple, it's where God came down and he dwelled in the temple. That's where God came to meet man. And the temple was where man came to meet God. We also know that the temple was this place of sacrifice. 
and all these sacrifices that were supposed to be taking place during Passover and all the sacrifices taking place day after day in the Jewish year. All of them, every single one of them was to point to Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, because he fulfilled all of these, right? The Jews would be coming year after year after year because of the blood of bulls and goats does not wash away sin. All of this was to point them to Jesus, that Jesus, in fact, is the once for all sacrifice. And so because of that, because he is the temple and because he is the once for all sacrifice, there is no need for you and I to go to the temple. There's no need for it. And in fact, it was destroyed in 70 AD. Right? And that's, it's good news that we don't need to go to this temple. Because Jesus, his glorious presence, the temple, the one that we worship, is now with us through the Holy Spirit. God's presence is in his people. Right? God in Christ came to earth. And we have access to him through Jesus. And so all of our worship, it is centered on and it is through Jesus Christ. So then if that's the case, then I have the question to ask you. If Jesus is the temple, if he's replaced the temple, then does that mean we as Christians, we no longer need to meet on Sunday? or We no longer need to gather together. Are we essentially, what I'm asking you is, are we just wasting our time here today? Not at all. Amen. Amen. We're not. Because Hebrews 10.25, in fact, tells us that we are to not neglect the gathering together. Why? So that we can exhort one another, to, to encourage one another, because God's people are commanded to come together and worship. Yes, individually we have access to God through Christ, but God's people are meant to gather, to be together. And so we're gathering today in worship of Jesus to gather in his name, to, to, to see him, and, and he is the one that we have access through. He is the one that we, in fact, worship. And so I want to ask you, even just in your own heart, in your life today? Are you here? Are you here to worship the Lord? Are you, is your worship, even if you're here, has, it been, has your mind and your heart been focused on Christ? Right, it's easy for us to be consumed with exams coming up or papers due or, or bills to pay or our children. But have you taken time to, 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 to prepare to worship? Have you been zealous and eager for God today? That you were looking forward to worshiping him through Christ? We have reason to rejoice that Jesus is, in fact, our temple. He has met us. He came to us. And so, right, even just think about... Philippians 1, that, that Christ, even though he was in, in the, the, 
he left heaven and took on the form of a servant. He came for us. He sought us out. He's eager for us. And so I, I want to encourage you, even just as, as much as I can, to, to prepare your hearts on the weekend, Saturday night perhaps, and get a good night's sleep, that your worship might be unhindered, that you and I could come zealous for God to worship Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have sent Christ to die, that he is, even as we've seen here, he's the temple. You have, you have sent him to die for us, taking on our sins if we've placed faith in him. And in my own life, it is easy to be distracted, to come and hear not ready, not prepared, not eager for the worship of Christ. So would you do a good work in us this week? Help us to be eager to worship Jesus as we come next week that we would come expecting to hear from you. We thank you that Christ is the temple, that we can experience your presence among us and, and, and we have access to you through Jesus. And it's in his name we rejoice and pray. Amen. Amen.